us turn in our Bibles, shall we, to the New Testament Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. Mark, chapter 13, signs of the end of the age. I know that the church has been talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ since he left. And some people have said, oh, that's all you Calvary chapels talk about is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Yeah, and? <laughs> that's what's happening next. Our job is to prepare the church for the second coming of Christ. And I think that every generation since Jesus, that generation should hold in its heart the possibility that Jesus Christ could come back in our generation, our lifetime. That should motivate us to holy living, uh, finding out what pleases him and then doing that. Jesus was preparing his disciples who had asked, oh, these magnificent buildings on the Temple Mount, oh, they're so big, they're so glorious. And Jesus said there's going to come a time where not one stone will be atop another. And they said, wow, when's that going to happen? So he starts off the discourse telling them what they will have to keep an eye out for. Because only 40 years later, Titus's Roman legions destroyed Jerusalem. Over a million people were slaughtered in the city. Blood ran through the streets like rivers, according to the Jewish historian Josephus. The temple destroyed, and it has not been rebuilt since. That was the second temple. It had been beautified by Herod. There will be another temple rebuilt. The chances are excellent. If you're saved this morning, you're not going to see it rebuilt. In fact, what Jesus begins to teach us here, uh, we'll be picking up our lesson in verse 14 where we left off. Uh, it begins to speak of things yet future of us. Where in chapter, four, or chapter 13 and verse 14, the abomination that causes desolation is when the Antichrist sets up a statue of himself inside the Holy of Holies and demands to be worshipped uh, as God. That means a third temple has to be rebuilt. The Temple Mount Institute today says they have everything ready to go and they could erect a portable temple atop the, the Temple Mount area that's occupied by the Dome of the Rock and other Islamic structures today. They said they could do that in 24 hours easily. They're ready to go. They have a dedicated priesthood. They've remade all of the implements that are necessary to temple worship. But from verse 14 on, you and I will be watching all of these details unfold from a heavenly vantage point, before the judgments of God fall upon a sinful, Christ-rejecting world, he removes his church. Why do I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church? Because as I've looked at the body of evidence from Genesis to Revelation, it overwhelmingly tips in the direction of a pre-tribulational rapture. And what that means is the church will be caught up, snatched up off the face of the earth in the twinkling of an eye before the judgments of God begin. Jesus said his second coming is going to be just like it was in the days of Noah. God did not throw Noah a life preserver and say, how's your backstroke? You're going to have to go through the judgment. The judgment of God is not for the righteous. How about Lot? Did God give him an asbestos umbrella and say, watch out, hellfire and brimstone is going to come running down. Sodom and Gomorrah, the wicked were destroyed. The righteous were delivered by a deliberate physical removal of the saints from the arena of judgment. God has not appointed us unto wrath. 
And yet that term wrath is used in the book of Revelation 10 times, but only from Revelation chapter 6 to 19, after the church is removed. How many of your sins have already been judged if you're a Christian? Then there's no point in you being here. Abraham had made the argument with God, well, surely, God, you would not destroy the righteous with the unrighteous. I mean, if you're God, you wouldn't even think of doing that. If there's 40, if there's, if there's 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, and God said, oh, for the sake of 10 righteous people, I can't. Then when the angel physically laid hands on Lot and his family and led them out, he said, don't you know the judgment of God cannot fall? as long as you're in this place. So God has historically, from Genesis on, always removed the righteous before the judgment fell. That's his modus operandi, if you will. He speaks of, now look at verse 14, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, let those who were in Judea, not the United States, not anywhere else, these are Jews that he's describing here, not Americans. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on his roof go down to his house or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. It will be difficult for them to flee. What's being described here is something that you've seen on the evening news for the last year now as Russia has invaded Ukraine and you've seen bombed out housings and things like that, it has led to the flight of hundreds of thousands, millions of people. Well, that's what's going to happen in Israel. As the forces of the Antichrist are making their way towards the battle of Armageddon on the plains of Jezreel, God warns his people here, the Antichrist is going to set up a statue of himself to be worshiped. All of a sudden, Israel's eyes are going to be open and go, oh my, we thought he was the Christ, the Messiah who was to come. He is, in fact, the Antichrist because he demands to be worshipped. And we worship the statue, and he's killing everybody that won't worship. And Jesus said, this future generation of Jews that begins to see these things come to pass, you better flee. Run while the running is good because when these judgments happen in the book of Revelation, they happen bang, 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 just one after another in fairly rapid succession. And the Antichrist will be viciously persecuting the nation of Israel. He has tried to wipe out that nation how many times? How many times? The abomination of desolation is a phrase that comes to us out of the Old Testament prophecies of Daniel. Uh, in chapter 9 and chapter 11, Daniel 9.27 says he, speaking of the end times Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many for one seven-year period. In the middle of that seven-year period, so three and a half years into it, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. That requires that the temple be rebuilt. It has not been rebuilt yet. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. It is something that is so heinous, so horrendous, such a horrible, horrible, unthinkable sin. That's an abomination that it causes the people to flee. The nation of Israel will have its eyes open for the first time in 2,000 years. And it says in Romans 11 that all of Israel will be saved. 
But there's going to become, there's that moment where they say, oh, this is the Antichrist. And he's going to be savagely persecuting the people of God. And Isaiah, as well as Daniel, encourages the people, as Jesus does here, flee to the mountains that are to the east of the Jordan River, the Transjordanian mountains that are over there in what is today modern-day Jordan. The city of Pella, the ancient fortress city of Petra, is there, a great place for the Jews to hide out. He will put an end to the sacrifice and will set up this abomination, this statue of his that he demands you worship or be killed, and it causes people to leave the land desolate. They flee, and he will persist until the end that is decreed is poured out upon him. Uh, in Daniel eleven thirty one, the same phrase. Some people, you talk to Jews today, they, they feel that Daniel was talking about something that happened in the year 168 B.C. when the Seleucid ruler, the Syrian ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, so hated the Jews, he rounded up as many of their scriptures as he could and burned them all, decided to desecrate the temple by erecting an image, a statue of Zeus, and then he slaughtered a pig on the altar of God. They thought, well, that's certainly the abomination that causes desolation. Actually, it led to uh, the recapturing of Jerusalem by a, a family of Hasmoneans, and the Maccabee revolt uh, left all of Jerusalem and surrounding areas under the control of the Jews for the next hundred years. In fact, the festival of Hanukkah commemorates the rededication of the temple after it had been desecrated like that. But the Jews felt, well, perhaps that was the abomination that causes desolation. Except Antiochus didn't set up a statue of himself and demand to be worshipped and put Jews to death that wouldn't. It didn't fulfill Jesus' scriptures right here. It doesn't fulfill Daniel's scriptures. It could not have been this event that Jesus is referring to because Antiochus, that was 168 years before Christ was born. It could not be the fulfillment of it. I believe it's a type of it. If you look at what Antiochus did in profaning the temple, you can anticipate what the Antichrist is going to do in the last days to persecute the Jews and to set up a statue in the Holy of Holies and demand that it be worshipped. But it's not the fulfillment of it under Antiochus. Others feel, well... That desecration took place when Titus' Roman legions destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D. That's the abomination that causes desolation. It can't be. Titus didn't set up any statues. In fact, he destroyed the temple, let alone setting up a statue on it, demanding that statue be worshipped. That is not the abomination that causes desolation. Historically, it doesn't fulfill any of these prophecies that are listed here and in Daniel. It's conjecture, and bad conjecture at that. Most conservative scholars feel that because of scriptures like 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4, and Revelation 13 still speak of a future, yet future of us, Antichrist that will set up an image of himself on a wing of the temple and demand to be worshipped. Uh, remember John wrote the book of Revelation somewhere between the year 90 and 100 A.D., and he described in Revelation 13 the end times Antichrist. So if you want to see what he's going to look like, you can read that passage. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4 says this. Paul writes to the church there and says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day of the Lord will not come until the rebellion occurs 
and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Another name for the Antichrist. But I want you to notice carefully, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. That day, the day of the Lord, will not come until the rebellion. The word rebellion in the Greek text is not rebellion. It's apostasy. Hey, apostasia. Not just a general backsliding away from the things of the Lord, but the ultimate backsliding of saying the Antichrist is Christ. He is the Son of God and worship this demon that possesses the Antichrist himself. The rebellion, I believe, is occurring even right now because there is a general apostasy that is coming upon a sleeping church. There is today an increasing lack of zeal for the things of God across the face of the world today. I'm not saying you or this church or even the United States of America, but around the world there is a cooling of the zeal that there once was for the living God. You can look at that term that Jesus refers to in the book of Revelation chapter 3, describing the church at Laodicea as lukewarm. It could be interpreted unengaged in society, not the sharing of its faith, engrossed in the things of this world like the church at Laodicea was, enmeshed in current technology, chasing after sin and pleasure and being lukewarm about the things of God, not reading, not praying, not caring, not voting, not having any impingement upon a sinful, fallen society. I mean, where do we get the idea that Christians shouldn't be a part of the political process? I think we're supposed to be salt and light in every arena of the world, every single one, whether it's politics, whether it's Hollywood, whether it's sports. I'm looking for Jesus to raise up spirit-filled on fire people all over the place. I was encouraged greatly a few years back when Chris Pratt from the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy series and among other ones in Jurassic World and things like that. He stood up when he received his awards uh, in 2018, and he said, I believe in God. God has got me where I am today, and we are all here because of the sacrifice of someone else. By someone else's blood, we have been redeemed. And he went on, and all of Hollywood was just, what? And he says, and you ought to learn to pray. It's not hard. It just requires that you do it. And, and he does this at the Academy Awards, and I'm going, whoa. That's because God has placed everywhere throughout all of society Christians here or there. Have you ever felt like you're the only Christian in your workplace? Or I'm all alone, or there's just a handful of us? Well, that's why God has you there. That's where you're salt and light. Well, take that salt and light into the voting booth. I mean, in this last mayoral election, there were only 35% of all of the available voters in El Paso County that turned out. Apparently, three-quarters or two-thirds of El Paso County doesn't care. What's that? The definition of lukewarm. Unengaged, uncaring, uninvolved. We can't afford to adopt a fortress mentality these last days where we're just going to circle the wagons until the Indians get tired of attacking us. That fortress mentality, we're supposed to be going out into the world and telling people about Christ, praying for people, coming alongside your next-door neighbors, being the, the good Samaritan kind of person, and yet, by and large, the church is increasingly dropping its role of responsibility in society. 
and we excuse it by unbiblical means. Well, I'm really not a political person. Are you a Christian? Then you should be a political person. You should be a person that tries to insert your faith everywhere you can and stand up for the name of Jesus. Why would you not? Why would you not? But understand that the church age that we're living in today is the lukewarm church that just doesn't care much. It's uninvolved. I don't want you to be a part of that Laodicean church. If you read that in Revelation 3, uh, it is not a church that pleases the Lord at all. I want you to be zealous. I want you to be on fire. I want you reading your Bible. I want you praying. I want you winning people to Christ. I want you worshiping like there's no tomorrow because there may not be. But what I don't want you to do is dropping the ball. You're supposed to be salt and light. That's your job. That's the only reason you drew your last breath. God has you here for such a time as this. And the church cannot lay down and let Satan steamroller us, playing the victim card every time we turn around. Stand up for Jesus. Insert him in, in all the conversations you possibly can. Live for Jesus. Be in the Word of God. You know how to become zealous. Don't settle for lukewarm. But it is a choice that you will have to make. I wish I could make it for you. With all of my heart, I do. It says in Revelation 13, describing this Antichrist and the stature that he sets up, Revelation 13, verse 11, then I saw another beast. This is the false prophet, the religious arm of the Antichrist's unholy trinity. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon, a serpent, Satan. He exercised all the authority of the first beast, the Antichrist, on his behalf, and he made the earth and its inhabitants worship the beast whose fatal wound had been healed. Zechariah talks about that. It's a minor detail that says that there was an assassination attempt, a John F. Kennedy kind of assassination attempt, and he miraculously recovers from that head wound. But it leaves him blind in one eye and lame in one of his arms. Zechariah's got some interesting details there. And he performed, this false prophet did, great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven. To earth in full view of men, because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, the Antichrist, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. This is why you and I must not chase after signs, wonders, and miracles. If that's what we're living for instead of living for the person of Jesus Christ, then we become emotional and spiritual junkies going from one high to the next, to the next, to the next. And we're always looking for somebody else to spin our plates on the end of a long pole like a circus performer. Well, Pastor Jim, spin my plates. How many plates do you think I can spin before the plates come crashing down? Whose responsibility is it to spin your own plate? Yours. Yours. But there are people that are so enamored with signs, wonders, and miracles, and it says they will characterize the Antichrist, and he's going to deceive a whole bunch of people. So if that's what you're chasing after instead of the Word of God, the Holy Spirit of God, and the Son of God, you're chasing after things that can potentially set you up to be deceived. Understand that we don't chase after signs, wonders, and miracles. The book of Acts said those things naturally followed the apostles that were sharing their faith and people were getting saved. 
But don't put the cart before the horse. You pursue Jesus Christ, whatever signs, wonders, and miracles he's got in store for you, you'll experience. You chase after signs, wonders, and miracles without the Lord and the anchor of his word, you are going to be set up for deception. You know Christians like that. they got to go from conference to conference to conference to conference. Oh, this one only $1,000. This one's only $250. They go to all these guys, but they never change. They never grow. They never stand on their own two feet. They're looking for somebody else to spin their plate. Probably half of the calls we get to the church on a weekly basis are people saying, I know what the Word of God says, and I have the same Holy Spirit that you do, Pastor Jim. I just want you to spin my plate. I'm always asking, are you reading? Are you praying? Well, I read, but I don't pray so much. Well, I pray, but I don't read so much. In other words, you don't, you're not obedient to Scripture, and you're, you're okay with that, right? You've got to keep, Paul told Timothy this, and it's so important. He said, you, Timothy, you fan into full flames the embers of the Holy Spirit within you. That wasn't Paul's job. Everybody says, well, pastor, that's your job. No, it isn't. You haven't read your Bible carefully. That's your job. My job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That is my ministry, but the work of the ministry outside the walls of this building, that's your responsibility. How do you accomplish that responsibility? By you fanning into full flames the embers of the Holy Spirit within. How do you do that? Read, pray, worship, share your faith, celebrate communion. These are the things that made the early church strong. They'll make you strong as well. But the tendency today is for us to hide behind the excuse of busyness. And yet we have exactly the same 24 hours available to us that Jesus did when he walked the earth. And he had enough time to do the will of the Father. It really is a cop-out today when we give so much of our time to technology or work or entertainment to the exclusion of God. And we hide behind that excuse We can hide behind our kids, hide behind busyness, hide behind their involvement in sports and make a thousand excuses. But when the day is done, we know they're just excuses. They won't wash. Not with God. Not with God. We are surrounded by lukewarmness today throughout all levels of society. Don't be a part of the problem. Be a part of the solution but you have to choose to be proactive because if you haven't noticed, God doesn't part the heavens and go, yo, you, read, slacker. You're not reading. Come on, get with it. He asks you to do it. He gives you countless examples in Scripture to do it, but he will not make you do it. The choice is yours. We've been made in the image of God with a measure of his sovereignty. That means the ability to make decisions for or against I I want to walk in his footsteps. Don't chase after signs, wonders, and miracles that characterize the end times antichrist. Because verse 14 of Revelation 13 says, because of the signs he was given to do on behalf of the first deeds, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. That assassination attempt I'd refer to. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast, this statue, so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image 
to be killed. I think the world is being set up today to be so enamored with signs, wonders, and miracles, we don't question their origin. Doesn't it say that Satan can masquerade as an angel of light? He does that to deceive the people of God, you and I. He offers all sorts of spiritual trinkets, but without the personal surrender and sacrifice that the Bible talks about is so necessary. The Jews, first of all, will rebuild the temple. Uh, It's an arrangement that will be facilitated by this end times Antichrist, who will more than likely be a very charismatic European leader. He arises out of the ashes of the ancient Roman Empire. Then he makes a covenant with the Muslims atop the mount, with the Jews, and allows them to rebuild their temple. And three and a half years into that great tribulation period, he sets up this statue, demands to be worshipped. The word statue in the Greek is icon, exact representation. It's, it's like a photograph. It is him, only in statue form, and the false prophet with him, somehow or another, convinces people that the statue is talking and able to communicate. The Antichrist will come to the temple and show himself as God with signs, wonders, to deceive even the elect, even the Jews, even the tribulation saints that have come to Christ after the rapture of the church. The statue in the temple of the Antichrist himself will be the greatest possible blasphemy. That's the abomination that causes desolation. And as soon as he puts that statue up in there and demands to be worshipped, And killing those that don't, Israel is going to have its eyes opened. Romans 11 says all Israel will be saved. They will realize what a catastrophic mistake they made. And then Jesus says here, then flee to the mountains east of the Jordan River because he's going to be coming after you. The woman Israel, and and notice again in, in verse 14, the abomination, let those who are in Judea, these are Jews, Flee to the mountains. It's not the United States. It's not the church. The woman Israel is protected in the Transjordanian mountains east of the Dead Sea. Some suggest Pella or the ancient fortress of, of Petra, possibly. Verse 15, Jesus continues, Let no one on the roof of his house go down and enter the house to take anything out. Um, don't let anyone go back into the field, get his cloak. How dreadful it will be for those that are uh, pregnant women and nursing mothers. It's difficult for them to journey. Pray that this will not take place in winter for the same reason, because those will be times, days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. That is yet future. And the fulfillment of that section of prophecy was not possible until the advent of the nuclear age. And you look at all of the wars that have ever been fought, never in the history of warfare has there ever been a quarter of the earth's population that perishes. And yet, as the seal judgments are broken in in, uh, Revelation, uh, starting in chapter 6 and verses following, a quarter of the earth's population perishes. A quarter, there's eight, just under 8 billion people on the planet today. So in the coming World War III, 2 billion people, I didn't say million, 2 billion people will perish in the initial wars and desolations that come out of that. 
a time of unequaled distress. And now we've got so many ways to annihilate the vast majority of mankind. All you have to do is target the 250 largest cities on planet Earth today and send uh, a nuclear detonation uh, over that city, and, and these numbers could be easily accomplished. It says later on in the trumpet judgments in the book of Revelation that, that um, a third of the remaining survivors after this will perish. In the next war, four billion people will perish. Four billion people will perish. World War III is coming. I think that the wake-up call that we have before us today is the saber-rattling that's going on between Russia, China, Iran, and especially the United States. I think these are harbingers of the world war that is coming. By the way, the Bible describes these entities in biblical terms of China, the kings of the east, Russia, the kings of the north, the kings of the east coming, coming into uh, the battleground in, in Armageddon. We're right on the doorstep of that happening. Why are we allowing Iran to be a nuclear weapon-capable country? All they need now is a nuclear weapon delivery system. They've got the enriched uranium, and somehow America thinks that's okay. China is saber-rattling and going to take over Taiwan, just waiting to see how well Russia's move in Ukraine plays out. But understand, we are on the precipice of World War III. It could take place in a matter of days, literally. And I think that the urgency of the hour is meant to shake the church out of any potential complacency. Because if you're not spirit-filled and on fire, you're lukewarm and backslidden to one degree or another. There is no other option. If you're not moving ahead in your walk with Jesus Christ, you're losing ground. There is no neutral. There is no cruise control position. If you're not growing, you're backsliding. I don't know where you're at this morning, but everything that's going on around you is meant to wake up a sleeping church, globally speaking. I don't know that the church is listening. I can't tell you how many Christians I've talked to lately that say, oh, I don't watch the news anymore. Why? It scares me. Do you belong to Jesus Christ? If the answer is yes, then we go to heaven before the first nuclear lob goes off, or simultaneously perhaps. <laughs> Either way, we win. We won't be here because the judgments of God are not for the people of God. Look at the example of Noah, Lot, just go on and on, the passages we shared. Over and over again, it says, God has not appointed us unto wrath. It will be a difficult time when these things are played out for the nation of Israel especially. So he says in verse 18, play, take place at, I, to pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would have survived. There are apocalyptic times coming, and turning off the news because it makes you feel uncomfortable and hiding your head in the sand will not alter the flow of these events as they unfold. Ignorance in this case is not bliss. It's ill preparation. 
What you want to be is spirit-filled on fire, Bible-reading, sharing your faith, clinging to the cross kind of Christians these last days. This is not a good time to be a closet Christian. Choose you this day whom you will serve, Joshua had told the people of his generation. This tribulation is going to be greater than the flood, greater than Sodom and Gomorrah, greater than World War II, World War I, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, all put together will pale in comparison to the dead of those days. Verse 21, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect. Again, the elect just means the people of God. It doesn't differentiate between Jews that are going to be saved or the, or the, the people that, that know God or the tribulation saints. Context is everything. The nation of Israel, if you ask them who's the elect in this passage, they'll tell you it's the Jews. We're the chosen, the chosen people of God. So they have always seen themselves in the Old Testament uh, as the, the chosen, the elect, if you will. And the Antichrist is going to try to deceive them. So verse 23 says, to be on your guard, I've told you everything ahead of time, Jesus said. But complacency has set in because the delay has been 2,000 years. Oh, we've been here. We were told in 1975, the late great planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, that the rapture was going to occur soon. And in 1978, it was prophesied. And then and other people said, oh, I'll, I'll be surprised if the, if the rapture of church doesn't occur in my lifetime. And, and it set people up for disappointment after disappointment. We should keep our eyes on the prize. He's coming back. I want to be ready for that event. And because I don't know when it is, I have to always be ready. Are you spiritually ready? Are you obsessed with the things of the world and entertainment and technology and all the nonsense out there that can take you away from the Lord? Or are you somebody that's really pushing in? I just want to see Jesus. I want to see His face. I want to pray. I want to, I want to worship Him. I want to sing these songs that glorify His name. I want to commit my way into His hands. I want to walk in humility and love because there's not much of either one out there in the world today, humility or love. Verse 24, but in those days following that distress, and here he quotes Isaiah chapter 13, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and heavenly bodies will be shaken. The sun will be darkened. Probably atmospheric pollution secondary to all of these nuclear exchanges. Scientists have uh, for uh, many, many years talked about the advent of nuclear winter. If we throw enough garbage through nuclear detonations globally to darken the atmosphere, it diminishes the incoming light of the sun. A nuclear winter could potentially result from that. Scientists have been warning about that for years. The moon will not give its light. We won't be able to see it through all the garbage in the air. The stars will fall from the sky. You know what the word star is in Greek? Aster. It's where the, we get the word asteroid. Have any of you ever been to the uh, Barringer Crater in Winslow, Arizona? Have you ever seen that big hole in the ground? Pretty impressive hole in the ground. It was made by something about the size of a VW bug. And it's a, over a mile across in diameter. One asteroid the size of a VW bug made that big of a hole in the ground. Imagine millions of those impacting the earth all over the place. 
That's going to happen. Stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Verse 26, you want to put a note right off to the side. That describes an event seen in Revelation chapter 11, or chapter 19, verse 11, when Jesus comes back to the earth. In fact, let's just take a look at that. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. This is a phenomenal verse because <laughs> for many reasons, there's a good friend of mine, Raul Reese is his name. He's a Calvary Chapel pastor out in California. And he said, and another good friend of mine, Greg Laurie, pastors Riverside out there, just came out with that movie, The, the Jesus Revolution. If you, if you got to see that, that was great. And one time I was sitting in, in a pastor service, and, and uh, Raul Reese said to us, did you know that Pastor Greg Laurie, did you know his name is mentioned in the Bible? And we all looked at Greg Laurie and said, your, your name is mentioned in the book of, of, in the Bible? And, and so Raul Reese read, led this, read this again in verse 26. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in crowds with Greg Laurie. And <laughs> I can't mimic his accent, but with, with Raul's accent, that is hilarious. Verse 27, and he will send his angels and gather his elect those tribulation saints from all the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as the twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you begin to see these things happening, you know that it is near, his second coming, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not, will not pass away until all of these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Let's unpack this phrase at a time. We should see these things beginning to come to pass. The wars, the rumors of wars, the desolation, the plagues, the famines, all of the things that we've seen in very recent times. The droughts, you know that the summer is near. Even so, verse 29, when you see these things happening, you know that his coming is near right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away. The word is gnasius. It can mean a race of people, like the Jewish race. It can mean a literal generation, which biblically can vary anywhere from 40 years to 70 years. What he seems to be saying is, the generation of people that see these signs unfolding, the Antichrist setting up a statue, the temple being rebuilt, all of those tribulation saints, that's the generation that will see the culmination of these things in the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's the book of Revelation in a nutshell. So if you see, as he has just said, the Antichrist setting up a statue, understand this, everything is going to cave in in seven years. In fact, it's three and a half years that he, the Antichrist will set up that statue of himself. So Jesus is saying the generation that sees that is the generation that's going to see the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation. Can I just have you turn there for a second to the right? Revelation chapter 19. This thrills my soul. When Jesus came the first time, he came as a babe in Bethlehem's manger. He was born into the most poor of circumstances. But the next time he comes, it's king of kings and lord of lords. He's not coming back a baby. 
In Revelation 19 and verse 11, John says, I saw heaven standing open and there was before me a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war against all of those that oppose his reign. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. It's where we get that song, that old hymn, Crown him with many crowns, a lamb upon his throne. We've got to do that sometime. That's a great song. His eyes were like blazing fire, and on his head were many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Remember what John says? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A little bit further in chapter 1, and he became a man and dwelt with us, Jesus. The armies of heaven were following Jesus, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Boy, you just want to circle fine linen, white and clean, because every place you see that happening, it refers to the church. The church. If you don't believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church, answer me this. How did we get up there? We're coming back with him. If you don't believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, when did we zip up there to come back with him as it's described in this passage? The mid-trib and pre-trib people don't have an answer for that one. I've not heard an intelligent argument about that one first. We have been in heaven with Jesus all seven years that the great tribulation is being played out. Verse 15, and out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Again, wrath, God has not appointed us, the church, under wrath. But it's being poured out here. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And all of the forces of the Antichrist will be dealt with by Jesus Christ at that moment. We won't have to lift a finger. There'll be a hundred million angels on horseback with us and we're all galloping down here and Jesus, the sword that comes out of his mouth, is going to slay the nations and you're just going to say, Wow. I mean, it's so trippy, it makes Guardians of the Galaxy look tame in comparison. It, this is a cosmic level event that is played out on planet Earth when Jesus comes to deal with the forces opposed to him and establish his kingdom for a thousand years. You and I will rule and reign with him. Oh, Pastor Jim, when? When is this going to happen? Soon. What does that mean? It means soon. Don't think of it in chronological terms of the hours going by on your watch. That's not what soon means in the Greek. It means when these things begin to happen. He's just been describing the setting up of the image of the Antichrist in the rebuilt temple. When that happens, it's going to be happening fast. These things will unfold quickly. No one knows about that day or hour, verse 32 says back in Mark 13, nor even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Okay, hold it right there. If you go to the Christian bookstore and say, somebody says, I know Christ is coming back in 2024, walk away, okay? says, no man knows the day or the hour. So anybody that presumes to know the day and the hour, you need, you need to just walk away from those fools. Don't buy that book. If you do, burn it. No one knows the day, about the day or the hour, not the angels in heaven nor the Son, uh, but only the Father. 
So what should we do? Be on guard. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know at what time he will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned tasks, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, you, me, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening, at midday, or when the rooster crows are at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping, church, complacent, lukewarm, living for the world, uninvolved, uncaring, not salt and light, hermit mentality. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. I don't know how Jesus could have worded more forcefully. I know it's been 2,000 years, but doesn't it say in Peter, with the Lord a thousand days as a year, a year is as a, a day is as a thousand years, Keep watch. That, that's the whole idea. But understand the world that we see around us today, and it's invaded the church. The church has become entertainment-oriented. I know churches right here in Colorado Springs that have a killer rock and roll band, but they don't put the words up because they don't want you to worship. They want you to watch a performance. So we have traded in true worship and surrender and the singing of holy hymns and we've traded that in for a secular concert experience in our churches and said, isn't it cool? And understand this, those churches grow very rapidly because they appeal to the flesh, not the spirit. They appeal to the carnal, not the regenerate. Be careful of that entertainment mentality creeping into any church. Be, be careful that you fight the tendency to be uninvolved or complacent or unengaged with society and, and the church. Don't be half-hearted. Don't, don't be lacking in care and compassion and, and service. Don't accept the status quo and say, I'm okay. You're okay. I'm okay. God's okay. We're all okay. Can I tell you something? You're not okay. You're not okay. You're a hot mess. God's working on you just like he's working on me. But uh, there's nobody perfect in this room which means there's work yet to be done in your life and mine. Absolutely. We're brothers and sisters in this common endeavor. If iron sharpens iron, that's what I've tried to do this morning. Motivate you to maybe just think about reading a bit more or praying a bit more or worshiping a bit more or fellowshipping a bit more. That's between you and the Lord. Now that the words have left my lips, I am absolved. I have my responsibility, but yours just begins right here and now. It's so easy to be caught up in, in wrong thinking these last days. <clears throat> All you have to do to drift away from the Lord is do nothing. Do nothing. It's like a, a rowboat that's lost its, its moorings, and it's just drifting with the current. You can find yourself so far away from God, and, all, and you never picked up on the movement of the boat at all. It's just drifting with the current. And pretty soon you, you wake up and you go, man, I'm five miles away from God. How in the world did that happen? I want to close with this. You have to be intentional in pursuing the Lord. It doesn't happen by accident. If you don't read, if you don't pray, if you don't worship, if you don't serve, nothing changes. Nothing. You've settled for the status quo just like the Laodicean church that envelops most of the world today. 
I want to share with you, though, Romans 5, 9. We will not be going through the great tribulation, which starts in Revelation 6, goes all the way to the end. People say, well, well, the first half, it's not the great tribulation. Really? It starts with global thermonuclear war and a quarter of the earth perishes. What part of that don't you think is the great tribulation? What are you waiting for if that's not enough to shake you? Romans 5, 9 says, since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath by Him? Okay, the book of Revelation is the outpouring of God's wrath as it was on Sodom and Gomorrah, as it was the generation uh, in Noah's time. It wasn't for the righteous. It was for the unrighteous. Thus, you and I cannot, we cannot be here when the judgments of God, God fall upon an unbelieving world that crucified His Son and stands opposed to Him to the present moment. The church will not be here to see the revelation of the Antichrist. You'll remember the faithful church in Philadelphia was promised, and boy, you want to write this down, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you out of, not safe through, out of the great hour of tribulation that's going to come upon the whole world to test those. The Greek there, it is imperative that you understand this. The Greek preposition when God says, I will keep you out of, is the Greek preposition ek. It doesn't mean I will keep you safe through. That's another Greek preposition called dia. That's not it. He doesn't say, I'll keep you kind of off to the side. That's another Greek preposition called apa. When he uses ek, it only means one thing. I will keep you out of entirely and completely the book of Revelation. Thank you, Jesus. Unless, of course, you want to be here for global thermonuclear war, you know, deny Christ. You can stick it out You're right here and hope you don't get martyred. Doesn't make sense. I love that promise. It is given to the church, the faithful church at Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3. And I would encourage you to highlight that one. What a promise. Because you and I have been faithful, God promises, I'll keep you out of that great tribulation. How does he do that? By an event we call the rapture. In the twinkling of an eye, the church will be translated into heaven and so be with the Lord forever. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Remember, wrath is only used in the book of Revelation after the church is removed from chapter 6 to chapter 19. That's the outpouring of God's wrath, the term mentioned 10 times in that passage. But Jesus is reminding his church, he is the one who rescues us from the coming wrath. He'll keep us out of it completely. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. Why? All of our sins have been judged. There's no wrath left for our sins. It was taken upon Jesus at the cross. He paid the price. All of the suffering that should have been ours, He took upon Himself. God did not appoint us, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. Think about it. Who are the judgments of God? from the Noah's flood to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah to the book of Revelation, who are the judgments of God for, the righteous or the unrighteous? Unrighteous, then we can't be here. 
I don't know what part of that escapes people that want to believe that uh, in a mid-tribulational rapture. I have searched the book of Revelation forwards and backwards more times than I can tell you, and I can't find anywhere halfway through the tribulation. So the mid-tribulational position to me makes zero sense. Why would we have to go through half of those great tribulations that start off with global thermonuclear war if the wrath of God is not against us? Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. A post-tribulational rapture, great, we got to live through all seven years of that hell, and then he comes back for us? Well, then how do we get on horseback coming down from heaven to earth? The post-tribulational rapture position makes less sense than the mid-trib. That's why I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. If you don't, that's fine. When I get taken up and you have to go through the great tribulation, I'll go, I was right and you were wrong. Bottom line is God loves you. If you've given your heart and life to Jesus Christ, he's already bought the plan that secures your salvation from the great tribulation. You don't have to go through it. If your heart and life is not given over to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, I would encourage you to to think that through. Why not? Because I can tell you this, World War III is coming, and I'm not asking you to take my word for it. Read your Bible. If you're unsaved and really want to scare hell out of yourself, read Revelation 6 through 19 and ask yourself the question, do I want to go through that? If you have have the IQ of a shoelace, you're going to say, I don't want to be here for any of that. No one does. Good news is you don't have to be, but you do have to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Totally and wholly and completely. And then you'll be ready for what come what may and when it comes. Always be ready. Always be zealous. Spirit-filled, non-fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. Daily, please. In Jesus' name, read, pray, worship. Fan into full flames the embers of the Holy Spirit within you, Paul told Timothy. That's your responsibility. So you can just see somebody there with a set of bellows and fanning into full flame the embers of the Holy Spirit. God knows that you and I have but a little strength. That's why he encourages us, invest yourself in these things. Because the status quo won't serve you well because it's so backslidden. It is so lukewarm. It is so ineffective. If you've given your heart and life to Jesus Christ, boy, the best is yet ahead. And it's a glorious future for you and I. Don't worry about your children. God loves them more than you do. Well, I'm not sure, Pastor Jim, what would happen to my infant? I trust God with your infant. They've committed no sin. They'll be snatched right up. That's not a problem at all. But the problem is the church that refuses to live for Christ, zealously and on fire, zealously and on fire. So I want you to be ready to continue to fan into full flames because we are certainly living in the last of the last days. We have a baptism this morning, which is a perfect picture of what I've been talking about. Baptism is where you decide, I want everybody in the attendance to know, I'm making a stand for Jesus Christ. I'm making a stand for Jesus Christ. So we have two baptismal candidates, which you guys would like to come on up here, Anthony and his precious wife. And they asked me, uh, Pastor Jim, would you uh, baptize us? And I said, only 
if you give 100% of your heart and life to Jesus Christ and vow to follow him all the days of your life? And Anthony said he was willing to do that. You willing to do that, Anthony? All right, well, get in. Need to take some of that off so we can get you in here. It's a public declaration of a person's faith. Have you made one since you were baptized? Have you made a public declaration of your faith? I think we ought to do that every time we're given the opportunity. We can't haul around the baptistry to Walmart, push it down up and down the aisles and baptize folks. I wish we could. It would kind of be fun. <laughs> but I don't think they'd ask us to come back. But as Anthony and his precious wife want to convey to you the depth of their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to examine your own. You can place yourself in this same spot. In your mind, it doesn't require the water to do it. You can do it right where you're at. Although I would be glad to baptize anyone here this morning. But on the other hand, Heavenly Father, I commit Anthony and his precious wife into your hands and ask that you bless them, that this would be a turning point in their life spiritually. It's not so much joining a church, it's a, becoming a part of the body of Christ because of their hope being placed in you totally, confidently, and completely, without reservation. Father, this morning, Anthony makes this public declaration, and we will all hold him accountable. He said he wanted to profess you as Lord and Savior, and I pray that happens every day of his life from this moment forward. As we baptize, Heavenly Father, I will baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as you commanded me. And I'd ask that you would fill and overflowing with your Holy Spirit, and this would be a monumental, spiritual turning point in our lives. Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Come on in, big guy. Yeah, be, be careful there. And you're going to step right down there. Anthony, do you love Jesus? I love Jesus. <laughs> Won't you have a seat? Right. You love me. You gave me your heart and your life? I give him, I commit my heart and my life to our Lord Savior. Amen. You understand, Jesus, the Son of God, died to take away all your sins. Yes, sir. And you gave him your heart. Yes, sir. How many of your sins still remain? None. None. Absolutely none. No 